trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI. This is uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald here in the studio, uh, as you heard, a trauma surgeon in Brooklyn, New York, uh, co-hosting with my wife, Dr. Cassandra Raphael, who is off-site today. We'll reconnect with her uh, in a little bit. And I have on with us today uh, some special guests from the Jordan McNair Foundation talking about preventing uh, injury and death to uh, youth athletes uh, and uh, my co-host, the uh, psychiatrist, has made sure that uh, we do a trigger warning in the beginning of the show. We may talk about um, loss of a child, a parent's loss. Uh, so for anyone who that may be triggering, please uh, you know, take caution. Um, so I should have on the air right now uh, David Johnson from the, Marty, uh, from the Jordan McNair Foundation. David, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Uh, great to have you with us, and, and I know, David, from my uh, work in Baltimore with uh, the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement, working to end violence uh, and celebrate life. And I know, David, you do a lot of work uh, with uh, youth athletics. And, and before we get into talking about uh, injury and, and, and death in youth athletes, uh, can you tell us a little bit, why has that become the focus of your life? Uh, you know, what is the, the value and the potential of working with young athletes? Um, so thank you, first of all, for having me on, Simon. It's, it's an honor. Um, and I'm always excited to talk about uh, youth and ways in which we can empower them and keep them safe. I would say that this journey started for me when I was working in education. Um, and so it's kind of twofold. It's interesting that you brought up uh, the work that I've done with movement that soon to be will, will be the, the movement formerly known as Ceasefire. But... Um, a lot of the students that I worked with when I was working in Baltimore City Public Schools, they were themselves athletes. I have a coaching background. For, you know, I coached uh, youth sports for a little bit. But um, a lot of them will be coming to school with, you know, rest in peace shirts on. And so everything just kind of, I don't know, the universe works in mysterious ways, I guess you could say. Um, so after I, I started working in the school system, I ended up working in the nonprofit field running sports program. And... Ironically, um, while I was helping, the, helping kids to get, you know, involved in youth sports, safety was not, you know, one of the priorities at the time. And I think for most of us um, as adults, as coaches, as parents, we don't think about safety first. And I'd known Artie for a number of years um, before I actually started working for the foundation. Um, when I was working in nonprofit, we had several partnership meetings, um, and out of those meetings came some coach education around heat-related illness training, um, being that, you know, Jordan, uh, he passed from um, heat stroke. Um, and so, you know, of course, Marty and, and Tanya went into advocacy. And that's kind of the short version of how I thought. It's kind of long, I think, but that's kind of the short version of how I ended up um, in this space. And not only was it important for me to make certain that, you know, athletes were participating in sports, but now – you know, having been with the foundation for now almost two years, our focus has shifted really to, you know, making certain that safety is paramount. And and just so people know, uh, David, when he was uh, in high school at Carver Vocational Technical High School, 
George Washington Carver, Vocational Technical High School in West Baltimore. You, uh, your teammates went on to the Olympics, the NFL, part of a really um, vibrant yeah. kind of youth sports movement. So um, I appreciate that you came out of that movement and, and working to instill that in kids. Um, you know, we're working to get Marty on the phone. So let me, let's take a quick musical break so we can make sure to loop Marty in here because I'm really eager to get him on the phone. Uh, so why don't we take a musical break and then we'll get him on the air. Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, Brooklyn trauma surgeon. Uh, and I have on the line with us D David Johnson and Marty McNair from the Jordan McNair Foundation. Marty, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good to have you. I was just talking with David about his work with youth sports and the value of working with them uh, and then kind of the obligation and the importance of making sure that we protect um, you know, the young people uh, that we're working with. And I just wanted to say to all our listeners, again, if you're just joining us, a trigger warning, we may talk about parental loss. So if that's going to be too much for you, this may not be the episode. Um, but, uh, Marty, first of all, I really appreciate you joining us because I really appreciate the work that you've been doing with the Jordan McNair Foundation. Um, and I want to start uh, kind of in the beginning uh, with those first two words, Jordan McNair. Who Who is Jordan McNair? Uh, so Jordan was my son, uh, uh, a great young man, and uh, obviously who had a mission that uh, obviously we had no idea about that was much bigger than him. We thought that as a family, uh, Jordan was a highly recruited uh, left tackle, uh, always a big guy, just in general, bigger than his average 
uh, classmates all his life and uh, just a real humble, humble guy. And one of the things we always thought that, you know, we'd be watching Jordan on Sundays playing in the NFL. And um, uh, Jordan had decided to um, go to the University of Maryland, even though he was recruited by many schools across the country. But he decided to stay home and attend the University of Maryland. And uh, the first day of practice was always somewhat grueling for them. And because, again, they would have to run what they call gases, and they had to run these, these 10 gases, So, um, and which is the gases are, are the equivalent of running the, the length of a football field uh, 10 times. So it's uh, 10 times up or 10 times up, 10 times back type scenario. And um, basically he had made it, you know, obviously he, he had survived it the first year he played. He made the team. Uh, however, he got redshirted that year and um, not to really utilize or just waste a, a year of eligibility because the two guys he was playing behind was uh, was pretty much injury-free at that time. So the second year, uh, which was uh, 2018, uh, same thing, first day of practice. You know, some coaches, that's just the way that they do things. It makes no sense because you never see linemen really running uh, no longer than maybe, you know, five to seven, five to eight yards doing any snap in a sense. But – you know, some coaches, that's just what they've historically always done. It's an old-school method in regards to getting kids ready. Uh, I don't know if, if it's effective or not. I think it does more harm than good. Huh. But anyway, um, the second year, Jordan, second year as a sophomore, first day of practice, uh, they were running gases again. And uh, we got a call uh, later that evening saying that uh, Jordan's in a hospital. He had a seizure, and uh, our lives changed forever at that point. Um, me thinking at that time, you know, Jordan was a healthy guy. I've never been in the hospital uh, prior to being, I mean, other than when he was born. So really no seizures or anything like that. So obviously me and his mom, Tanya, while we were in route to the hospital, when we got to the hospital, I basically started asking questions. And um, we went from a, uh, Jordan was in a cooling suit when we got in the hospital, and they were trying to get his core temperature down. So my conversation on uh, Monday uh, May 28th basically was the equivalent of, hey, I know practice starts tomorrow. Um, hey, have a good week. Call me when you call me later in the week. And that was Tuesday. And then that, uh, no, that was Monday. And that Tuesday, you know, my next conversation with Jordan was, son, if you can hear me, blink your eyes. Son, if you can hear me, squeeze my finger. And we went literally from a healthy kid Tuesday morning to an emergency liver transplant Friday morning with Jordan being within hours of his life because, 85% of his liver was dead or necrosis. And you can imagine as a parent, you know, you're asking yourself, you know, what the heck happened between Friday and Tuesday? I mean, uh, Tuesday and Friday to the point where my child is, uh, my son is, you know, within hours of his life. And if we don't make an emergency, a decision right now to get an emergency liver transplant, you know, obviously, you know, he'll be dead within a few hours. Wow. So life had really changed for us. Um, those two weeks, Jordan was in a hospital fighting for his life. You know, for me, it was like the equivalent of taking a crash course and obviously what was going on with him. And, uh, you know, I really had to kind of learn really quick, uh, you know, what had happened or, you know, just all the things that life would change. And the interesting thing, Simon, is, you know, I tell people, you know, whenever this conversation comes up, I was always optimistic that Jordan would be, he would make it. You know, I was optimistic that he would make it. I knew he might not. He probably wouldn't play football again, but I just was confident that this was something that, you know, he could get through or we could get through as a family. Uh, make a long story shorter, Jordan got the liver transplant, which was successful to some degree. However, I just think that the time frame that he was on the field that day, um, and <coughs> excuse me, the time frame he was on the field that day <clears throat> basically had elapsed. Uh, all the irreparable damage because at that time, I'm using the term heat stroke loosely now as I used it loosely back then. But, you know, they, there was conversation of him having a heat stroke. I didn't know what a heat stroke was. I just basically thought it was the equivalent of you've been out in the sun too long and, um, you know, all you need to do is get in the shade and drink some cold water and everything would be all right with the world. I had no idea that heat-related injuries could be fatal. Right. And, and you know, obviously I only know what was been um, published uh, sure. In the papers publicly, but you know, uh, I think it's been said that he arrived to the hospital with a temper temperature of 106, and it just yeah. you know, and it, you've already questioned kind of the the value of even the drills that they were running. 
But there was definitely, and I think a lot of these youth injuries that turned fatal or irreparable, a missed opportunity um, when someone could have recognized that this person's not doing well and that there are things that we can do. And instead, there was an hour or so, you know, you can tell us the details, where his temperature was way too high and doing damage to all of his organs to the point where he, need, like you said, needed a liver transplant that week and it still wasn't enough. Yeah, so good question because the thing is, like, really, you know, I'm a layman's terms guy. I, I just came from getting the eye exam, and, and while I was talking to the doctor, you know, he went into the whole, you know, the, the you know how you medical doctors do, and I'm like, Doc, bring it, give it to me in layman's terms. So in layman's terms, what I got from my research was um, a heat stroke is the equivalent of your core body temperature going being above 104 degrees. Now, whenever you're above 104 degrees, that's the equivalent to your body being in a microwave oven. Now, you when you're cool, when you when you're in that microwave oven, all your organs start to cook. Your liver starts to cook. Your lungs start to cook. Your kidneys start to cook. Um, I mean, you can just go on and on. So all your internal organs start to cook. You literally have a twenty to thirty minute window to cool a person down via ice bath, whether one of the other modalities or other ways you can cool a person down, whether it's cold towels. Um, the best way to even get a core temperature reading is a rectal thermometer. Um, so, again, you have 20 to 30 minutes to start this process. Now, when Jordan got to the hospital an hour and 46 minutes later, his core body temperature had been 146, I mean, it was 106 degrees. So, an hour and 46 minutes, we're already an hour and 15 minutes or 16 minutes past the window of, of uh, the grace period to cool him down. So, you can imagine, you can imagine the damage that was done. Uh, when you look at it from the medical terms of it. So that was the reason that we went from a healthy kid, or that, that was the reason for the emergency liver transplant, just because that time frame that he was steady cooking, you know, really did more damage than anything. Right. And so, yeah. you know, we can get into a little more uh, talking about that loss, but I do want to make sure yeah. we have time to talk about your work since then. Um, sure. How have you kind of responded to this and, and obviously to basically prevent um, other other young people and other families going through what you you guys have. Yeah. So basically, for us, you know, the main thing that that two weeks that Jordan was in the hospital, Simon, really was just like such a a pivotal point in our lives. So for me, you know, as a father, it was basically like, what did I miss? You know, that's the same. That was the main. That's when I started asking questions beyond what happened. Has this ever happened before to the athletic trainers? But when I started questioning myself. I was basically kept saying, like, what did I miss? I missed something. What I missed was what I didn't know, right? And everything that I taught Jordan to survive and take care of himself and all those things, as a father from the inner city, Baltimore, you know, obviously I gave him the tools I felt as though he needed to survive. And I thought he was very receptive to the tools. However, this was something that I had no idea about. So those two weeks he was fighting for his life, I had no clue. And I kept asking Tanya and I, Jordan's mom, we kept asking ourselves, if we don't know these things, how many other parents in America don't know these things? Now, this is the interesting thing, Simon. I had no idea at this particular time while we're questioning ourselves. I don't know any of the statistics. I don't know about – I didn't know Jordan was like the 30, 31st player in the NCAA in the last – since the year 2000. I don't know about the numerous kids at the AAU level, at the high school level, that have died as a result of a preventable heat-related injury. So at this point, I really had no idea. I'm just asking questions. And the questions that as us as parents always ask is, can my child play and why is my child sitting on the bench? I didn't know. I just I was just like every other parent in America at that time. All we ask is those questions. We don't think to ask the laundry list of security or, or health uh, security questions that we should be asking. So at that time, it was just like, you know what, you know, it, did, it was such a, a, a very, very, Man, it was a tough time for us at that time, and, and even to think about it, it was very challenging. And I kept saying, you know what, I had I was already in the advocacy space. I had an advocacy background, and I said, you know what, if we don't get in front of this thing, you know, literally grief is going to consume us. Hmm. You know, this is the first time, you know, I, I, that I've lost a, uh, anybody that was in my personal space outside of the life cycle. You know, my parents were still, my parents are still living there in the 80s. So to have my child die before all of us, you know, was really, really disheartening for us, to say the least. Of course. But that was really the main goal, like, let's start some type of 
um, uh, advocacy campaign, and literally that's where the nonprofit or our foundation came from, because we wanted to prevent other families from experiencing the same thing. And and I agree, and definitely there's value in um, young people and their parents knowing what to look out for, how to advocate and protect themselves. But what really troubles me, uh, especially when we're talking about University of Maryland, uh, I'm a University of Maryland graduate, um, and, okay. and I was the first year I was there was uh, Fridgen's first year. University of yep. Maryland went from really one of the worst teams in the ACC at that time to, uh, you know, going to bowl games and competing with some of the top teams in the country. So, you know, and then they went to the Big Ten. It was a little bit of, you know, inside football, I guess. But, you know, and, and I was disheartened then when I saw them, that program kind of chasing money. And what really bothers me, you can't blame a young person or a parent, but especially when these moneyed programs, you know, there's a big responsibility and opportunity that was missed that troubles me for, uh, you know, the, the coaches, the trainers, the athletic directors, you know, um, really prioritizing the safety of the athletes. Um, so I don't know if you want to speak on that, how, how your work has addressed both you know, the young people and the parents that you mentioned and then other institutions and the adults in the room that whose really responsibility and obligation needs to be to protect these young people. Yeah, um, well, the big thing for that was, you know, as a parent, I speak for I speak for a lot of parents. You know, I, that's what I do. I represent, you know, I represent different genre, different demographics. We represent parents. We represent advocates. We represent student athletes. You know, obviously, we represent coaches. You know, so but the thing is, and and the message is the same. However, it looks completely different, and we represent athletic trainers. You know, it, it looks totally different from depending on the audience. But the message is always the same, which is. Student athlete safety. Now, I like every parent in America. You know, I tell people all the time, everything that our organization does, when you come to our clinics, we educate parents. You know, because everywhere, I start looking back in hindsight, everywhere I took Jordan Simon, whether it was a combine, whether it was a, a sports clinic, a football camp, a um, uh, uh, whether he played out of town in games and things like that, what was always consistent was there was no parent education. And so what does that do as a parent? That that puts us in a, a deficit in a sense because what do we kind of automatically? We automatically assume that these people that are holding these events, these people that or this organization that my, my this um, uh, um, uh, high level of institution that my student athlete or my child is going to, you assume that they know what to do in the event of. <laughs> and a lot of times that's not the case because guess what? I never had no idea or any thoughts of a what-if scenario or in the event of scenario. I just automatically assume, hey, this is a big thing, high, a collegiate university, a high-level institution, and in the event that something does happen, they know what to do. And this is just what I assumed. I never asked. I didn't know what questions to ask. But when I look back in hindsight, every program that he played for, every event or no matter who the brand was, you just assume that they knew what to do. And when I look back at it in hindsight, I didn't ask questions. I didn't know what to look for. And matter of fact, even without me knowing what to look for, now i got a pretty good memory. I didn't see anything in regards to safety equipment or things like that. So, you know, it can kind of be, you know, we can follow as parents. We can either assume and hope these people know what they're doing, and in the event of something happens, don't be in my situation because that's what I kind of just figured out, that we assume that these people were, going to do the right thing in the event of. Right. And, and nobody thinks in the event of when your child goes to school. And just for our audience, if you're just joining us, this is uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald with Marty McNair from the Jordan McNair Foundation, and we are on Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. And uh, full disclosure, um, I reached out to, uh, to David Johnson, who's also on the air, when there was another student athlete death, um, and I knew he was working with young people, um, and, you know, being a, a trauma professional, I reached out and said, you know, what can we do to make sure that um, we're protecting these young people's lives, that we're uh, getting involved in these sports activities and all the benefits that they that they show. And one thing from being involved with the Jordan McNair Foundation that I appreciate from um, your approach is coming from my background as a trauma surgeon. I remember being a student and, uh, you know, being in the trauma bay and watching you know, somebody come in who's been stabbed, shot, or hit by a car, whatever it may have been, and everybody was, you know, doing things like clockwork. And I said, wow, how do you know everything to do this? You know, you have so much to think about. How do you even know? And one of the senior people said, really, trauma is designed so you don't have to think, at least in the beginning. You, you know, 
You do everything on the checklist. You do everything according to protocol. You recognize what's going on, and you follow the protocol. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what I've seen in the Jordan McNair Foundation approach is teaching, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm misunderstanding, but trying to bring these protocols of what to recognize as a sign of a crisis and bring a protocol to the adults in the room, what to follow in a timely manner to address this crisis before it becomes irreversible. Exactly. I couldn't have put that better than my, I could have put that better myself. You, you laid it right out, Simon. And, and so I don't know if, you know, if we definitely probably have parents and, and students listening, but definitely coaches, teachers, you know, uh, leaders in, the, in, in sports and, and athletic directors and trainers, definitely make sure you know what are the risks to the young people you're going to be working with and what are the signs of those crises and what are the protocols to, to respond to them quickly so that we're not talking about another missed opportunity. Totally agree. Totally agree. Simon, you know, the main thing is, is and, and what we try to do is, um, uh, legislation has been a really big part of our story. So initially we always thought it was, you know, we, when we came out the gate, we were, we were a football centric foundation because Jordan had a football injury. And then when we started realizing we, we thought it was one thing. We started, we thought it was the safety equipment and we donated like 300 cold water tubs across the nation from Alaska to Florida. I don't care who it was. Whatever sport it was, obviously, you know, if you need a tub, call us. You know, we had some money in our budget to do so. Then we kept saying, okay, kids are keep dying. You know, it's like, okay, well, it's not the safety equipment. Then it was like, okay, hey, you know, I'm out. I'm yelling from the rafters. I'm talking to as many football teams and sports teams. And then pre-COVID, you know, right when COVID, right before COVID kicked off, uh, the beginning of 2020, it was basically like, hey, you know what? We need every student athlete in the school in the room or in the auditorium when we speak because this affects everybody, right? We can get a, a bigger crowd. So the crowds got bigger in the, at the high school levels and things like that. However, kids kept dying. So it's like, okay, well, what's going to make anything I say stick? Now, the main thing with that was it was like, okay, let's get legislation. So I got in the legislative. And, Simon, keep this in mind. Jordan's, been, Jordan's passed. Uh, his fourth year anniversary was June the 13th of this year. Huh. So we've been very, we've been really, really busy. However, it's been an organic process. Man, there's no way in the world you could have ever told me I'd be an advocate at this level. Or to this degree, in a sense. So we thought it was that. Then we got to the legislative process and said, so, okay, let's get the legislation passed. Okay, because people gotta listen, they gotta listen to the law. Kids kept dying. What was the one common denominator that we always kept seeing in all of these Preventable deaths across the nation, whether it was soccer, whether it was football, whether it was a track star, whether it was a basketball player, they always boil down to the same thing, the emergency action plan. So that documented example mm -hmm. that you just gave in the trauma room, that's what was always consistent. And every single death that was across the nation when it came to a sports-related injury, was the emergency action plan followed? Now, you take out all of the emotions in Georgia's case, and when we circle back around in a redemptive, um, uh, a restorative justice initiative type conversation with the athletic trainer on the field that day, a gentleman by the name of Wes Robinson, you know, I, of course, initially you wanted somebody to blame. That's just natural, a human nature you want somebody to blame. But after we kind of got around, hey, just due to our faith, and, you know, this was, just, this was God's plan. We never know what God's plan is. So a lot of times Jordan had a bigger he had a bigger mission than what was here to us. So when we reached back and we made contact with this guy that was on the field that day and take all the emotions out the picture, you know, and then when you start to look at it, when we had this conversation, what was the one consistent denominator? The emergency action plan wasn't followed. So now our last piece of legislation was in the state of Maryland was that went in effect July first was House Bill eight thirty six. And basically, what does that mandate? That mandates that the emergency action plan is practiced twice a year. Now, Simon, if it was up to us, we wanted to practice every quarter. But at the end of the day, guess what? You know, two times is better than one time. So the emergency action plan is followed. It's mandated that it's practiced. It's practiced, not followed. Practice. Practice twice a year. It mandates that all of the safety equipment, the AED machine, the cardiac, I mean, for your cardiac arrest, your Heat-related, um, your heat-related injury, your heat, your cold water tub, all these things are in arm's distance. 
your uh, wet bulb growth thermometer to really take the real court, to take a temperature of really what's going on, if it's safe or not. All these things should be available, and all these things should be within arm's reach. Right. So, again, like you said, that example you just gave, all these things, we already prepared for something to happen, and guess what? We've practiced this enough, so practice it enough to the point where these things do happen. Basically, we're already prepared for them. Right. So and we're already waiting for when it does happen. We are, we're already prepared, and that's really the main thing. And, you know, I keep saying I appreciate your work, but um, one thing that occurred to me in thinking about this is that obviously those those trauma protocols that we follow in the hospital um, weren't ordained from God, so to speak. At least, you know, men and women had to have a hand in it. And one of the uh, contributors to that, similar to this, was a young athlete's death, um, I would say, in, in my understanding of the history. And and that's, uh, and David, you may be familiar with this history. I think Ben Wilson was his name, the high school basketball player in Chicago, um, who went to Simeon, one of the best uh, teams in the country, and outside of school one day got into a trivial argument and was shot. Um, and just based on the you know publicly available information, probably severed his uh, iliac artery, probably the main artery between the aorta and going into the leg. Um, and, you know, at that time, the EMS would take him to the closest hospital, you know, and then they would, someone in the emergency room would kind of figure out what's going on, call somebody at home. Uh, and we they just missed the opportunity. That, like you said, that there's a short window to get it right before somebody has irreversible injuries. And that helped everybody realize, you know, losing one of the best high school basketball players in the country who drew bigger crowds than Michael Jordan at the time, um, that uh, we were doing this wrong and we needed a new trauma protocol and helped really motivate trauma systems to be put into place around the country. Um, so I, I just wanted to say that there is a kind of an interesting parallel there. The, the other, the, you know, you mentioned a little bit, it's not just heat-related illness, um, and you touched on a little bit, or at least you said AED, the uh, automatic uh, defibrillator. So there's cardiac in, um, abnormalities that can lead to sudden death. But what are the main, you know, uh, causes of uh, death and irreversible injury in young athletes that uh, you're working to have emergency action plan for for the adults in the room? All right. So since since David's a guest on the show with me, I'm going to throw that to him since this is a conversation okay. we have consistently. Yeah, so the, the four main causes of death among student-athletes are the four H's. So you have head, heat, heart, and hemoglobin, which would be like sickle cell traits. So those are the four main causes of why student-athletes, um, especially at the high school level across the country, uh, succumb to these injuries. And un unfortunately, if they don't receive the proper care, you know, they pass. And so you're talking about uh, kind of heat, exertional heat stroke, head uh Traumatic brain injury. And trauma, so concussions that are not um, adequately uh, diagnosed. Um, you know, we we just saw a few weeks ago uh, with a professional player, um, Tonga Vailoa, who had concussion symptoms in one game, was able to re-enter the game, and then subsequently suffered another concussion later in the week. So if we don't catch these things in a timely manner, and, and in his case, you know, fortunately, um, there wasn't irreparable damage, but that we know tell, about. That we know about, right? At this moment, right? Um, he's 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 returned since and has played a couple games, but years down the road, there might be, you know, damage that we weren't able to catch. So, and that team has faced important. a lot of criticism for that basically risky behavior, um, risking their their quarterback's health. Yeah, yeah. hey guys, as coaches, oh, go ahead, good, go good, Mark. You, you know, and the interesting thing, the main thing, also, I, I think that. Keep in mind, somebody has to have some common sense, right? Yes. And only situation because these are athletes. There's no after if somebody fell right now, all three of us could be doing something together. And if somebody fell or got injured, first thing we're going to ask, are you okay? And the response right. that you're going to get, I don't care from who it is, even if it's out of embarrassment, I got my bell rung on the football field, which is the norm, yeah, I'm okay. Now, Somebody has to have the fortitude to say, hey, you know what, you're not okay. Well, somebody has to have the, 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 the fortitude and also the forward thinking, in a sense, or just the... And the, the tools, style. that's the point. And the tools to say, no, you're not okay. I just saw that, as opposed to letting you go back in the game. So I just know as athletes, that's just something that we commonly do. No, we're okay. I'm, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. In reality, you're not good. Right. But that's just what athletes say. Look, 
it's some type of bone sticking through your skin or something like that. You know, again, but most of the time, that's what we say. So I know even in the the situation that we're talking about, I guarantee you that man came off the tree and would say, no, I'm good, I'm good. I just got shook up a little bit. Now, it was the team doctor's, it was the team doctor's decision to say, no, bro, you're not good. You know what I mean? I just saw the way your fingers looked or whatever the case may be or that little stumble, that showed something else. So, Simon, that goes back to what you said about missed opportunity because Mm -hmm. that missed opportunity can be fatal. Correct, correct. Um, And uh, anything else you wanted to add to that, David? We were talking about the the various... um... Marty, he kind of picked up where I was was headed. You know, Mm -hmm. someone, whether it's a parent, um, a coach, another coach, an assistant coach, or even another player, um, if, if you really care about the health and wellness of these student athletes, then, you know, that's something Marty and I have discussed recently as well. We focused a lot on educating parents, which we need to, um, and also coaches, but student athletes kind of have to know what signs and symptoms to look for in these instances where a coach might miss it. Some of these coaches, you know, at the AAU level, um, even at the high school level, they don't have a system. They may have multiple uh, athletes that they're trying to look after and coach all at once. Um, and so they might miss something. So uh, our Kobe curriculum kind of is a way for student athletes to empower themselves through self-advocacy, Definitely. to speak up for themselves and for teammates should they see something that just doesn't look right. So Marty mm-hmm. touched on you know kind of where I was going with it, but we need to make certain that student athletes, coaches, and parents are all informed about what the signs and symptoms are and how to properly uh, treat them or address them when these emergency situations happen. For sure. And, you know, we're, we're um, getting close to the end of the time for this segment, but, you know, I, I've always, uh, when I was growing up, I sort of imagined myself a little bit like Icarus and always trying to make sure I didn't, didn't fly too close to the sun, um, if people know that mythology. Um, but now I have kids, and now I realize I'm dataless um, and making sure my kids don't fly too close to the sun. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a fair segue, but Marty, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with, with dealing with that kind of loss? Yeah, man, I'm going to tell you, you know, one of the main things is um, uh, that was one of the most challenging times of my life because I think that uh, us as a family, but for me as a father, because, you know, out of all the things that I taught Jordan, you know, it's kind of, it's, and I don't know if this is the best analogy, but, you know, when you play golf, right, as soon as you hit the ball the wrong way, right, it's like, okay, oh, man, I topped it, I lift my head up, I, I shanked it, I did this, I did that. I didn't do what my follow through. As soon as the ball goes somewhere wrong, you know exactly what you did. Now, when Jordan passed, you know, one of the things I'm realizing, like I said, what didn't I teach him? You know, what didn't I emphasize? I taught him always how to be a leader. You know, never a follow. Always fight for yourself amongst your peers. Don't let nobody even think they can take advantage of you, play with you, know, none of that. You know, we don't do that. All the things that a father teaches a son, but one of the things that, but I quickly came away from that mindset with what didn't I teach him and what I didn't teach him was that's another reason we started the foundation was if your body tells you to stop I didn't teach Jordan self-advocacy I always told Jordan to be a coachable kid so in essence what does a coachable kid really look like that's a robot I told Jordan to be a robot essentially always do what coaching them say you know what I mean that's how you're going to get to the next level but in reality that's not how you're going to get to the next level because most the game of football or the game of any sport hasn't stopped because a kid died playing last year, the sport keeps going on. Hmm. And the main thing is, like you said, great analogy. When you fly too close to the sun, you have to listen to your body. You know, you don't want to fly too close to the sun. That's a great analogy. You know, for those of us who know Greek, Greek mythology, but you don't want you want to teach student athletes because this is this is the misnomer that we have, Simon. That especially when it comes to heat stroke. Um, um, all these different things. We think that we think that you have to be out of shape. You weren't hydrated. You weren't this. You weren't that. Man, David and I can personally tell you that we volunteered as medical volunteers at events where we worked in the in the um, in the uh, safety tent or the, the medical tent. And you have elite athletes that, at their peak condition, can still have a heat stroke. Mm-hmm. You have elite athletes that can still you know, hey, have cardiac arrest, and so on and so on and so on. All the four main things that, you know, we can, you know, other than concussions, but you don't have to be somebody that's not out of shape or not hydrated. Yeah, it's likely one of those things happening, 
can make a difference early on. But at the end of the day, what about a person that's in peak performance or their peak shape? You know, they can still succumb to these injuries because at times, if you got to know, if they fly too close to the sun, where I'm overdoing it, I may be in the zone, but me being in the zone can really put me in a dangerous situation. Well, I, I think moving forward, I, you have to cut you off, but I think moving forward, I'm going to start using that story of Icarus as well when I talk to student-athletes. All right. Well, you're welcome to have it. Um, and yes, I re- thank you. I really appreciate you guys taking the time and, uh, to come on. Um, and uh, as we close out, any uh, any music or anything that you would want to recommend to us in our audience that you may not uh, we may not listen to otherwise? Uh, and you know what? I literally, and this is this is interesting, I literally just sent David a song of a young lady I met today. Uh, her name is, uh, her song just dropped today, and her name is uh, Just Singing, J-U-S-S-S-I-N-G-N. And the name of her song is, I don't know the name of it, but it's Just Singing, well, J-U-S-S. Singing. I'll follow up with you guys afterwards and maybe try to get it on the air next time. But definitely thank yeah, you for, thank you for joining us. I look forward to working with you guys in the future. Thanks Thanks for having thank you. This is uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald with Trauma Code uh, here uh, on the air. We just got through talking with uh, uh, Marty McNair and David Johnson of the Jordan McNair Foundation about preventing uh, injury and death to uh, student-athletes. And I'm here again with my co-host, Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Can you hear us? Yes, of course. Hi, good afternoon, Dr. Fitzgerald. Simon, how are you doing? Uh, doing good, doing good, and I just realized that I haven't mentioned at all any of the music that we played on today's show. So while I'm thinking of it, uh, we we opened up with uh, Paul Reborn, um song uh, "Voodoo Ceremony." Uh, he's a Haitian who's um, you know who spends a lot of time in Brooklyn, and whose music he's performed in Brooklyn many times over the years. Uh, and uh, the second song we played was a new Rihanna song that you brought to my attention, uh, Cassandra. Yes, that was um, Lift Me Up by Rihanna. It's off the Black Panther 2 soundtrack. That's, uh, that film's going to be released, I think, on November 11th. And uh, many who follow um, that film or that that uh, comic series will know that uh, Chadwick Boseman, the actor who portrayed the Black Panther in the original film, uh, passed away last year, I believe, of... Uh, of a cancer and his death was much of a surprise and very unexpected. And I think this song by Rihanna is played during a part of the film. Of course, the film's not released yet. So this is what I think I, I, I think I understand that this, this song is played during a part of the film in which they, they um, recognize the, the original Black Panther and, you know, the subtext here for people who know of Chadwick Boseman's death is that they kind of hold him up and lift him up in that same light because he, you know, in portraying the Black Panther represented a lot of positive things for for Black culture and, I mean, kind of as the, the king of, like, a Black utopia. So um, it's a little bit of a double entendre, art mimicking life a little bit. And dealing um, with loss. And dealing with loss, of course. So that was Lift Me Up by... Rihanna, her first single in, I think, six years. So it's a, it's a big deal for many reasons. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell that uh, you were listening to the first half of the show, even though uh, you have to be off-site today. Um, and, you know, one of the, in addition to Marty's advocacy work um, and working to 
implement protocols to recognize uh, potentially uh, fatal injuries to student-athletes and, and getting the adults in the room to act quickly. He also talked to us a little bit about his own sense of loss, having lost his son to uh, exertional heat stroke when he was an offensive lineman for the uh, University of Maryland. Um, you know, we talked in the initial episode about taking mental health breaks as part of our trauma code. Uh, do you have any thoughts in, in, in addressing that, that kind of loss and, and, and how he's turned that into this powerful advocacy work uh, to prevent the loss? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so that's a, a great question. So just in terms of, you know, defense mechanisms, this is what we call sublimating, right? So somebody has a very difficult, terrible thing happen to them. And the way in which uh, Marty McNair has kind of taken that experience and channeled it into something uh, positive and somewhat altruistic and to kind of, for, for, the, for the benefit of many other people, He's kind of taking his his pain, his his suffering, his own trauma. And yes, when a parent loses a child, it it is traumatic. It's traumatic for many people. But the parents kind of suffer in a very unique way. And and Marty kind of touched upon that uh, in his conversation with you. And it was fast, you know, like not the conversation, but the way he touched upon it was kind of brief. But I knew what it meant, you know, because I'm listening a little bit with a clinical ear, right? So. Um, one of the things that Marty mentioned is that uh, he asked himself, what did I miss? What did I miss? You know, when you're a parent and, and something so tragic happens to you or to your child, um, and you kind of think, is there anything that I could have done to prevent this? Um, very common reaction among parents because, you, you'll, you know, as, as a parent now, I can say that um, you always want to, to – protect your child. Your, your mind almost tries to see the future and, and to kind of prevent any kind of injury, um, any kind of, of disappointment that the child might, might incur. And then here we are, right? Something so tragic happens and you'll also, you'll go back in your mind and you'll kind of replay a video. Like, is there anything that I could have done? Is there anything that I could have done? And so Marty's response sounds like he's just trying to kind of pay it forward and help anybody else who might have, you know, a child in in a similar situation, kind of know what to do, be prepared, and getting teams on board and getting athletic uh, organizations uh, privy to this and saying, you know, what can we do in the foreground to make sure that this doesn't happen to any of our players? Um, when, when parents lose specifically older children, um, the intense nature of their response to the death of the child can be related to, to many different things. You know, this is a child... Uh, at that age, right, as a, a late adolescent, a young adult who has, you know, developed many unique interests, has a specific bond with the parent or a certain kind of relationship with the parent. Um, and if the parent shall know these things about the child, the way that they grieve can definitely be influenced by the, the love for that unique child who has passed away and the, the intimacy and the strength of that bond, um, which is unlike most other relationships in, in one's life. Um, and, you know, Marty at the beginning of this conversation also said when uh, Jordan was hospitalized, he accepted that Jordan might not play football again, but he, he believed that Jordan would survive this, right? So when, when parents lose children, there's such a significant shift in the expectations uh, that one has for their own life. Like, you start kind of amending these things. You say, okay, maybe the kid is hurt, but he'll, he'll survive this, but this part of his life might change. But now, in, when, when you have a parent who has lost a the child, they have to kind of think about themselves as, you know, somebody who's able to survive without a certain part of their life. And that can be very, very hard. Um, parents, especially if they, you know, don't feel like they have a certain kind of support or if they don't have the opportunity to talk about what they're going through. Um, it, it, it's a little bit of a challenge to the parent's identity as a, you know, as a good protector, as a provider, as a nurturer. And, you know, you, you can be hard on yourself. <laughs> you can be hard on yourself. It, it's very difficult for parents who have lost a child, especially yeah, in this imagine. way. They, yeah. They begin to wonder 
Like, is there anything that I could have done? What did I miss? The way that Marty said. But as I said, you know, Marty is definitely sublimating in a way that, you know, that is to be beneficial for for other parents, for other athletic organizations, kind of not have this happen again. Right. Um, and, and I'm always hesitant to, to when we talk about coping mechanisms because a lot of them are unhealthy, but the way you mentioned a sublimation as a technical term is definitely a, a healthier way to do it, to um, to turn that into a greater good and to invest in something valuable. Absolutely, absolutely. But, a lot of trauma research uh, surrounding um, individuals who have lost in, in, you know, in a very traumatic way, close to the time of death, it's often recommended to talk about it um, just in order to prevent later adverse reactions, um, like complicated grief, which, you know, means that you feel particularly traumatized. You may not be able to do much for a very long amount of time. Um, You have to kind of rearrange your life to accommodate the fact that you feel somewhat incapacitated uh, by, by the loss, even in the very long term. You're, you're, Mourning is not going very well, right? So, talking at the talking about it early on is very helpful for preventing that kind of uh, complicated grief and later we could, on. We could certainly talk about this for an hour, but unfortunately, we're getting to the end of the show for today. So, I want to thank everybody for joining us on Trauma Code. This is uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, and I'm here with uh, my co-host, Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Uh, adult and child psychiatrist. Thank you for listening. Of course. And the music, uh, two more pieces. One that uh, we played earlier, at least part of, some people might recognize uh, as being, I believe, the song Beyond Love uh, from Beach House, who's a close friend of ours, both Alex Galley and Victoria Legrand. Um, so we really appreciate them. And David Johnson, who was on with us, is also a performing artist. Artist. His stage name is Danny Handsome. So I think on a minute or so we have less we're left, we're going to close out with part of his song, Time, that he released recently, and he'll be performing in Maryland in November. I hope to see him there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, everybody. Hey, hey.